Hi, I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, and we are sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So Susie, today we're talking with uh, Deborah Lane, who's one of the authors um, of a book on education called Raise Her Up, Stories and Lessons from Women in International Educational Leadership. And I should mention too that you and I actually actually know Deborah. She's um, been on Fall for the Books board uh, for a couple of years and, and has worked in uh, various uh, areas of Virginia education for a long time. So this book looks at a lot of different women who are in leadership positions in the education field, really from all over the, uh, all over the world. But one of the things it talks about kind of across all of those different people are the different qualities that are found in a leader. And one that kind of stood out to me that I was thinking quite a lot about, and I think a lot of us are thinking about in the sort of post-COVID area is resilience. Um, and I'm curious, Susie, like what, what does the idea of resilience mean to us at this point, especially like as teachers, because you and I have both sort of taught through the pandemic and, and now coming out of it. You know, when I hear resilience at this point, I just feel like it's it's bouncing back. How fast can you bounce back? How creatively can you bounce back without sort of emptying your cup, as it were? Um, because having been fully in person and then fully online this last semester, I did a, a hybrid course while I was in the classroom one day and one, you know, one day online. It's such a, a different experience. The students are really tired. The staff is really tired. So it's been a real challenge to figure out how to be resilient in the face of this and all sort of the personal struggles that folks are having. And I think for me, it's been figuring out how to break things down into even more digestible steps. And I don't mean that in sort of like a dumbing down way, but me really sort of reevaluating how I approach certain topics, whereas like do I need like a half step instead of a whole step from one thing to another? Um, do I need more like tutorial to just sort of give everybody and myself a break and help them ease into new things? And I found that they've, the students have really responded to that, to have some more like low risk chances to try things out and fail a little bit and then learn from that and move forward. So that's, I think that's been really sort of key to how I've been changing and growing in this period. You know, I think you're right. Like when, at this point, when, when you hear the idea of like resilience, I feel like sometimes it's just like, oh, do we have to keep being resilient? It's like, it was such a difficult transition for everybody moving online, um, trying to kind of maintain everything that we were already doing, but in this totally new environment and living through these really remarkably stressful circumstances. And, you know, I think what you're saying about like how it really sort of changes the way we're approaching assignments and the way we're, we're approach, approaching the classroom makes a lot of sense because sometimes it really just has felt about like being thinking about how, how do we make what we're doing survivable and manageable as opposed to just like putting on the happy face and being like, well, we're going to be resilient and we're going to get through it. It, it. it really feels like it means something different now. Yeah. And um, I think part of that is cutting ourselves some slack, you know, well, I think we're going to talk to Deborah a little bit about, you know, self-care. Um, that's a, a section in the book as well. And I've, I've certainly found that taking a hot minute, <laughs> you know, and de-stressing or just taking a minute for myself has really improved my presence in the classroom. Like take a step back, 
is this working just because I've always done it doesn't mean I need to keep doing it that way. Can I shake things up a little bit? Can I learn a small new skill or something that's going to make this material more fun or accessible or applicable, <laughs> you know, yeah. to their, yeah. to their lives and their experience. And I really, I, I really feel like it's, it, it's something that's constantly on my mind too, with just like how the students are, are coping with all of it because their like their whole lives got turned upside down as well. They they had to move to this this very different way of learning, and, and, and like you say, like we've found ways to adapt to it. But every single one of their teachers is adapting to it differently, and and sort of it feels like we're kind of on our own figuring it out. So then you've got these students who are navigating all kinds of different adjustments to to, to a lot of different classroom scenarios that I imagine is is still making learning kind of difficult for them. Yeah, I'm excited to hear from Deborah since she's held, as we'll hear in her bio and through our discussion, a huge range um, of positions in the education world. And I think she'll have some really awesome insights that, you know, not just teachers can benefit from or administrators, but I think parents as well, or just anybody (laughs) anywhere can benefit from. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk with her today. Dr. Deborah Lane has been an educator for more than 30 years. She was nominated as Virginia Principal of the Year and won the Chesapeake Bay Foundation Educator of the Year Award in 2009. She's currently an educational consultant at Lane Leadership Group, LLC. Lane co-edited the anthology Raise Her Up, Stories and Lessons from Women in International Educational Leadership. Welcome, Debbie. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Really excited to talk to you all. So a lot of the lessons and stories in your book can be applied to America's schools, but it's, it's focused on international schools and their leadership. Can you talk a little bit for us about what an international school is and why it's important for us to know about? Absolutely. So um, I, I've had experience in the public independent schools in the U.S., but I also had some great experiences working in the Dominican Republic and in Shanghai, China, where I um, was an instructional coach and a principal in those schools. And those schools often are seeing students that um, are coming from the embassies, they're coming from American, Canadian, Australian companies. And so often there's an agreement between the company and the school to educate the student and the US State Department can be involved at times in uh, supporting with grants, financial grants around curriculum, around opportunities and programs so that students can have access when they're overseas with their families. Um, More and more, the independent international schools are also allowing local students to join. Often you need to have an international passport to join those international schools. I would have loved to go to a school like an international school. That sounds so much fun. So can you talk a little bit, you you mentioned a few of the schools that you've worked at uh, here and abroad. You've been in a lot of different positions um, in the educational sphere. So can you talk about how how did your extensive background in education inform the creation of this collection? You know, I, th- I think over time, I had a lot of conversations with different leaders. I had gone to several different courses at Harvard while I was overseas. And then I also was involved with Apple, where we were sent to Singapore for learnings and learning about schools and Apple products. And so there were different kinds of experiences that opened up where I was talking, especially with women in leadership. And I was in awe over a lot of these women going against some of the cultural barriers in their jobs. And one example is Elsa. 
here she's Venezuelan. She had worked in Jakarta and then moved over to Laos and is head of a school in Vientiane, the international school in Laos. And, you know, the, the cultural barriers around language, around experiences, knowledge of the locality and how to go about dealing with buses and custodians and hiring local teachers, uh, working with local companies. I mean, it was just something that I was in awe of constantly and having those conversations with especially the women leaders in those circles. That would be a pretty daunting job, I think, to learn all of that and make it happen Definitely. successfully. <laughs> so you you mentioned a number of the international schools you've taught at. Fair, we've talked about Fairfax County. So in thinking about the students that you've seen and, and worked with, what thing, what one thing have you found that students need to su- succeed in school that's you'd say is pretty universal? Oh, wow. That's a wonderful question. I would say for students to succeed universally, it's it's this openness. Uh, and I think at times the IB uh, profiles are really um, centered around that with the theory of taking classes like theory of knowledge and world religions and providing a lot of different readings in those areas. I saw with within my own children, even at the elementary school, there was a lot of project-based learning We had service learning during Chinese New Year. We had to get approval from the government in various localities to go out and provide books and winter coats for students who had dirt floors in their schools and had no heating. Uh, And so these were wonderful experiences for the students to have around getting out of their own bubble. Um, We see that in the Washington DC area where we're in a DC bubble. And when we go outside into the mountains of Virginia or Maryland or go out to the coast, uh, we see different kinds of schools and different kinds of students, learnings that are happening. And so the exposure for our students to be looking at that and an openness, I think is really important too. You know, it's it's interesting hearing you talk about this because the, the thing that it's kind of really making me think about is how much the pandemic has impacted this over the last couple of years. And, you know, like this book came out about two years into the pandemic. So I I think you were kind of working on it during, during the, during that time. Yeah. And, you know, like you've done some, some work as a, as a school improvement coach as well. And I'm really curious, like what sort of changes or needs um, has the pandemic highlighted within schools? I I just, I, I imagine, you know, hearing you talk about what, what kids need in terms of like, openness and connection to these these other these other ideas and these other avenues for learning. The pandemic changed so much of, of how they get that. It really has. I, I would say, you know, I think that the pandemic has exposed the factory model that we've been using with students and it's not working and school has to look different. You know, the mental health issues with students and with our teachers have really rise to the surface. And so the, the need around the arts, looking at learning in different ways, whether it's, it's through video, it's different times of the day. Some of our students respond better in the evening. Some, some do well early in the morning. Um, so it's more around to me, the what ifs of, of what could be possible. There's been a lot, of, I would say leaders in school systems that make assumptions about students that are not true. 
And when I was in Alexandria, we were heavily involved with the Carnegie Foundation and looking at the science of learning. And one of the things that there, there was a big assumption that, that our high school students, in particular Latinx children, were dropping out of school and they, they, were, they were lazy. And so we started getting into different tiers of, of asking why, 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 and doing like a fishbone diagram. And it turned out that a lot of these students, their parents were undocumented. And due to the ICE situation, they had to stop working because they were scared they would be flown back to their home country and get, get caught. And so the students had to pick up the slack. And some of these students were working two or three jobs. And so this became a direct correlation into a bigger need around virtual school and assisting students to navigate the difficult pathways to get their GED or to get their diploma. It wasn't a laziness, if anything, it was these students were working double, triple hard to um, really help their families financially and, and mentally. And so I think that COVID has really shown us that we need to step back from our assumptions and get deeper learnings on each other. And as I've gone into some of the school systems in the state of Virginia, it's it's the same thing. We have some dysfunctional systems that are using old methods to either financially support or intellectually support school systems that it's just not working anymore. And so it's time to really start asking our questions on what is working for students, having those conversations and interviews with students on what's best for them to respond to schooling? What do they wanna see with their own schooling? Because I think a lot of the students have those answers actually. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the that's such a huge important piece of the pie. And you also mentioned the teachers and sort of the teacher's mental health and the teacher's struggle. And we, we've all read about or have experienced, you know, the tsunami of, of teacher burnout and, and retirings and quitting and things like that because of, you know, the challenges of COVID and these challenges that you're bringing up with the students and administrators and, you know, the tension there. You know, in, in your book, you bring up a bunch of really great lessons. Um, your contributors bring up a lot of really great lessons like self-care and mentorship and things like that. How can some of these lessons be applied to these teachers who are suffering so much right now? I think, you know, we, we focus on self-awareness, authenticity, looking at leadership development, connectedness, resilience. I, I think one, during COVID, we've all learned that the connectedness amongst each other is very important. Uh, some of us thrived being in COVID because we enjoy being introverted and, and more alone in some regards, but there were many of us out there who extroverted or introvert extrovert that needed that connectedness. So I think getting deeper with teachers and students around what does connectedness look like for you? What is it that people know about you um, or they don't know about you that you wish they did know about you? Um, how could you be more self-aware and connected, especially with your physical body around what your needs are? One of the things that, that got brought out in COVID and among some of the teachers was, I can't sit in front of a computer for longer than an hour. So what does that look like for you? Does it mean a 10 minute walk outside? Does it mean a hike in nature on the weekends to, to make connections and restore yourself? You know, really getting deeper on what that looks like in that self-awareness piece is gonna be very important. 
And I think listening to your body, your physical body, when you're starting to get tightened in your body, whether it's up in your shoulders, in your stomach, um, getting headaches, what does that mean for you? And how can you focus it so that you are good to yourself and nurturing yourself and you're good for others? Because I think what's, what's gotten lost is um, making those connections with ourself and improving that for students. One of the things that we've done, which could be a curse, it could be a curse or a blessing is that we're quickly expediting teachers who aren't certified to become certified because we have such a teacher shortage. But we're now putting teachers into classrooms that don't have the skill set, the background knowledge, or the level of understanding around child development and even adult learning theory on what works best in classrooms and building leaderships in schools. We're noticing that a lot of leaders during COVID were managing because they were getting thrown with trauma and dealing with all kinds of issues during COVID. And now we're coming out of COVID somewhat. And these, these leaders need to go back into leading and instructional leadership. And they're still managers, they're almost stuck. So what is that gonna look like? And we go back to that self-awareness, professional learning, connectedness with other principals, other instructional coaches. And I'm really getting clear on that. I could go on and on about that subject. <laughs> this, this is such a hard question too, because you know what you're saying about teachers and, and administrators even being able to identify what they need personally and, and how they kind of find ways to center themselves how does a school find a way to support that? You know, like, especially when, when, as you're saying, the schools are in this position where they're kind of having to fast track certification and, and things like that. I, I just, that feels like such a difficult question because you've got these individual needs, on the one hand that, that you want teachers to kind of be aware of and finding ways to take care of themselves. But, 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 but there's gotta be a way for the school system, for like a large school system to be supporting that too, right? And what is that way? Well, there, there are ways. And I would say one of the things that was really interesting during the pandemic was uh, green schoolyards out of San Francisco really blossomed. In fact, they got a lot of federal and state funding. And I started joining uh, with several different people here from DC around parents wanting their students to have connections to outside learning because they were noticing that their kids were gaming more and staying inside more during COVID. So what are some of those connections that could grow in school systems? And that eco-learning is a big one. You know, that the schools are developing these eco-credentials where students are doing that project-based learning where they're looking at watershed education, for instance, in the DC area around how is the water runoff affecting my locality when, when it rains and those chemicals come from the cement and run off and go back out into the bay? How does that affect our ecosystems? You know, so we're, we are making some connections around what affects us, um, how we can improve our lifestyle, sustainability. And I think that there are schools that are making those connections and building up like a capstone project for students around sustainability, around politics, around uh, the eco-learning and environment and ways that we could improve those areas. And there are many ways, the environmental education 
the VAEE, the Virginia Association of Environmental Education. I was on the board there and our membership grew double, triple during COVID because teachers realized, you know, I need to start bringing the outside into my learning, whether it's through the Zoom or it's through meeting up with groups in parks. Um, so those have been different areas that I do think school systems have been looking at and also looking at their playgrounds and how could we blend the environment into our playground. So I want to I want to shift a little bit um, and ask a couple more things about the book. One of the things that, that you talk about in the book is how women make up about a quarter of the number of, of superintendents and, and leaders um, in the United States, but they all but they make up seventy five percent of of the teaching staff. I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that disparity and and, and what drives that. Well, what what drives it is that there have been high levels of males that have been in leadership positions for centuries. So that's just a bold and blunt statement there. But, you know, I think that women in particular are there, they've been noticing. And, you know, I look at my mother's generation where uh, there was an increase of teachers and nurses within their generation. And that was the go-to careers for many women. But there were also your, your blaze runners of women that came out in fields of science and math. And that has really percolated through um, social media and film industry where we're highlighting and raising those women up now that were those science leaders and math leaders uh, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But what we're noticing is, you know, as we look at the DEI work and we notice that we need an increase in black, brown, Latinx, Asian, you know, teachers, and students need to see their own people in leadership positions, in teaching positions. So what, what does that look like as we grow the field? And as we talk about you know, women kind of peeling back the onion here around male leadership in schools, we started noticing, and I started noticing as I started going to conferences, especially high level conferences, or um, I got invited to the Women in International Leadership in Schools basically conference at Harvard where they blended the business school and education school, every presentation was given by amazing women. And there were conversations beyond education and curriculum. It was negotiating contracts. Uh, we had the lead negotiator for Katie Couric's contract when she went from NBC to CBS. And she walked us through that journey and what it looked like for Katie Couric and, and saying that this this is part of your journey as a woman, you know, that you need to be hiring a strong woman lawyer that's going to negotiate for you and, and not just sit back and apologize or, uh, you know, apply for positions that you think you're not credentialed when actually you are, that the findings of men constantly and consistently applying for jobs where they, where they don't have all the credentials but they have the bravado and the confidence to do that. We need to really work on that with women because this is something that women are not good at and they come in apologetically into situations. And how can we stop with beginning with an apology and start talking about, here's how I'm showing up and here are the areas I wanna grow in as a leader and here are the areas of my strengths. So that's so true. This is like that tendency to almost like apologize for taking up space. It's 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 so ingrained. 
Yes, that's interesting. You you, you talk a little bit too about uh, male allies in the book. How do how do you think men in the education system should be supporting their uh, their their colleagues and and what does male allyship look like in that K through twelve field? I've, I've become a big follower of the Naval Academy professor Brad Johnson and David Smith. I think David's at Johns Hopkins, and they wrote Good Guys, and they've done a number of uh, pieces of research on how men need to be stepping up more and mentoring women leaders. And they talk about the discomfort men have in doing that, that it can be, and this is in education as well, as well as you know, business, that men feel threatened by women, that if they show that they're helping a woman into a leadership position, that it's, it's not defending the other men that could have been in that leadership position that men are uncomfortable sexually in their concern that they'll uh, feel uncomfortable in situations where they're mentoring women and, and what that looks like and the boundaries of it, um, or, or they're being nudged in ways that they feel uncomfortable and having those conversations and being really honest and deliberate as we're looking at mentoring women. You know, I've noticed that in the field of education, we're trying to be more deliberate in naming it and bringing it out. We had, um, I spoke in London at the European Council of International Schools last April, right when the book came out. And I had very few men in the audience. It was mostly women, although at the conference, it was like 60% male. <laughs> and one of the male leaders who heads a huge international school actually here in the States said, you know what? I am guilty of this. I am doing this and I am buying this book for everyone on my leadership you know, panel and develop these skills and talk about them. We need to have these honest conversations and how we can improve. And that's part of our DEI work. It's not just around necessarily race, it's also around gender. So we've been having some of those conversations. I will say also, I did a Zoom conference with heads of international schools mostly in South and Central America. There was only one man that attended. There were 50 women in the room. And the one man after who I happened to know from a school in Chile said to me at the end when everyone was off, he said, you know what? That was my first time I was ever the minority. And that was really uncomfortable. The women are very angry at the men and it got brought up in this conversation even though I tried to ask for a lot of boundaries and respect. And I said, they are. And so how can you help us? You know, if you come to another session, could you bring another male leader? You know, there are little things that we all could do. It's like recycling. There are little things that each of us do each day that we could be brought into the work and made aware of it. That's fantastic to hear that people are becoming aware and that they're willing to bring other people into the conversation. Exactly like you said, you know, one person at a time, these things can spread and, and make some change. You know, in the, this just sort of wrap things up in this conversation, in, in the book, each section um, has a story, it has leadership lessons, it's got food for thought, um, it has little questions that the reader can ask themselves to evaluate who they are, what they're doing, and and move on from there to make some changes. And 
we've heard a lot of really great things about what educators and uh, educational leaders can take away from this book. And clearly it's already making an impact. But for those of our listeners who are not educators um, or in the education field, what do you feel is maybe one of the strongest things that they could take away from this conversation and from your book as well? You've already started to touch on a number of them, but, but what do you think one of those things might be that they could take away? I think finding courage to really dig deep on some things, you know, we think about, we have a conversation with ourselves in our head. And at times that conversation, sometimes we, we ask it to calm down or we, we don't want to acknowledge it. And what I'd say about this book is that building that resilience around it and, and listening to that courage that I think one has men or women and, or women, I, I would say, you know, I'll give you an example with, with the cover of this book. I, I got called out by a colleague on, they were upset that it showed women in traditional dress. And I, um, I talked to the colleague and picked up the phone because it was a text. And I said, you know, I really want to have a conversation with you about that because you're already building an assumption about the cover of this book and you haven't read the book. And I said, this woman that actually designed the cover and part of the chapters of the book with the artistic and graphic arts design, she came from poverty in, in Barcelona. And she is now um, an artist that makes artwork out of flower petals. And she came from nothing to something. And I actually found her on Etsy and she'd never designed a book cover before. And it really, we are about raising women up and that's what the book cover is about. And so the person apologized and said, you're right, Debbie, like we do that a lot as humans. And so we need to ask more questions, be more self-aware and really stop ourselves and filter ourselves when we're making those assumptions and ask for a deeper learning on something. Well, thank you. This has been really, really um, enjoyable and, and thought provoking. So thanks, Debbie, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was really enjoyable talking with you all. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.